Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 211. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. For more information, go to axontire.com. Also, Tractor Zoom's iron comps. If you're looking to see what's happening in the auction market, check out Tractor Zoom iron comps and you're going to get a nice laid out edition there that shows you what's going on in the auction market and you can be able to go back and see trend lines as they developed and trend lines developing. So if you're interested in what's going on in the auction market, Check out Tractor Zoom's Iron Comps, and at checkout, if you use Moving Iron, you get a discount. Rich Poston is my guest this week, and love having Rich on. He comes on about once a once a month, and we sit down and talk about what's going on in the economy. Um, I'm a I'm a layman at best when it comes to understanding the true economic forces that are in play here, and and uh, I tell you what, Rich, there's there's a lot of economic forces in play right now, so. Have you been and and kind of bring us up to date a little bit on what you're doing right now? Ah, thank you for having me on again, Casey. Uh, yep, I'm doing well here. Uh, we made some uh, significant calls in some of these markets that we'll probably discuss tonight, and and I think they'll have a an input on the inflation story as well. Uh, and then from uh, looking back from last year, uh, I felt like yes, the economy is going to grow. Yes, we're going to pull out of this recession, and yes, it's almost daily we're seeing positive. Data. Now, there's always negative data. You never get 100% positive or bullish or bearish on anything. But um, I really like the trend that's going on. Uh, there's always going to be someone who's going to have something in the opposite direction to say. But I'm, I'm fairly confident here that anybody who's against the idea of a growing economy, I'm, I'm probably going to say uh, they're more of a distractor <laughs> that I want to want to downplay that a little bit. Uh, in other words, stay with my own model. Uh, I'm feeling confident enough, and I think we're going to get get some economic growth here. All right, so let's talk about the stuff that, you, that you're working on right now. So you've got your podcast. Talk about your podcast a little bit, where people can find that, and what, what kind of information you're going to glean from that. Yeah, so I have a podcast that uh, it's really just a way of uh, presenting what's coming out of my model as well as my opinion, because sometimes I'll even challenge my own model, test it a little bit. I might say, I'm not so sure about that, things like that. And I give a variety of signals that can help uh, producers of commodities, end users of commodities, uh, the speculators, stock investors, uh, businesses in terms of where's the economy, how healthy is business going. 
And uh, so a variety of signals and opinions. And uh, and then the beauty of this is it's mostly video podcasts. I do some audio. Uh, usually if it's audio, it's more free stuff, trying to get people to, to take a look at it. And the reason to push the video is that uh, you can see on charts these signals and see how they flow. And it really helps people to gain confidence of whether or not to follow them all. You'll hear some people saying, I know you're going to be right, but I just don't think I need to do something right now. And then the next signal will say, I know you're going to be right, man. by gosh, I got to do something. You know, it gives them that kind of uh, a confidence level and makes it more useful. So they can find my stuff at criticalpoint.podbean.com. Uh, it's a very simple site. It just lists the videos as, as I put them up. I'm trying to do a better job, make sure each video you click on that there is uh, not just an explanation of the video, which I do put up every time, but there's a better explanation of how you can actually purchase it. Because uh, some of these things, it looks like small print, especially if you're watching on your cell phone. So I got a little better link there uh, that I've recently added. Now, I'm also on Twitter, and I can be found at rich underscore Pawson, P-O-S-S-O-N. And they can also email me at rich at ag-financial.com. And you can direct, of course, tweet me if you want to direct message me there. Um, those are my primary sources uh, of how I put my stuff out to the, to the public and subscribers. Uh, so that's basically what I'm working on. Uh, I got a little side thing I'm uh, starting to work with and bringing on the first few uh, clients here in the next week or two. Uh, I'm, people have followed me for years in the stock market and they really like what I'm putting in the podcast. And you can follow that podcast and actually trade like me, invest right along with me. But I'm adding another step where I can actually do it for people. So um, I got a global broker that we've already uh, set up a deal with. And so what will happen is when I give a signal for the master account, everybody else who's signed up, it's already automatically taken care of, uh, of it for them. Uh, and then they can just watch their own accounts day to day if they want. Uh, so that's something new that uh, I'm adding. Right on. Good stuff. So they can get all that information at, at by emailing you or going to going to your website, which, which is the best way for them to... Uh, if they, uh, yeah, if they're interested in the... Um, uh, being in line with the markets here and the subscription, go to that website, criticalpoint.podbean.com, and there'll be some free stuff. And if the, and they should sign up. It takes a credit card. It's a monthly recurring thing, $27.99 a month, uh, which is cheap relative to the importance of those signals. A lot of, a lot of my competitors are saying, why are you selling it for that price? Well, the thing is, I don't write a newsletter. I know what that's like. I've worked for companies writing newsletters, and you can just get bogged down of writing all day long and re-editing editing and things like that. And people just enjoy that I just get right to the point. That's kind of how I picked the critical point name. Just get right to the point, show how these signals are set so they can see what they could have done the prior years and an idea what they need to do for, for the future. Great stuff, folks. Make sure you follow Rich on Twitter. The stuff he puts out there is, I mean, it's spot on. I mean, I, I, like he's talking about, a lot of good information comes out there. Um, he and he backs it up with the stuff that come from the from the big firms, like you know the big news groups like MSNBC and and uh, you know like Bloomberg and those kind when they when they Wall Street Journal those kind of things. He's he's always pulling that stuff out there and showing like where where he's at comparatively. So he's done it. He's doing a great job. You know, highly highly recommend what Rich is doing here. So all right, ma'am. So. Let's jump over and talk about a few things that are happening in the overall market as a whole here. 
some pretty lofty goals have been put out there by the Biden administration and also by the Federal Reserve. When you start talking about GDP growth, um, I've read 4%, I've read 6%, and I've seen some banks put out 8%. So all of which are pretty lofty goals considering where we come from. But you also, like you talked about here, we're coming out of that recession. You know, we're coming out of that that uh, pandemic-driven uh, um, recession. And, you know, right now we've got about three big things that are in play that have uh, have some pretty mag- you know pretty big influence on what we see happening here. So we got the dollar, we got some inflation, and we got some interest rate issues that we see right now. So which one do you want to start with first, Rich? Which one do you want to... Yeah, quickly, just on the GDP, okay. the interest rates, and interest rate inflation are big ones, but this GDP, uh, I'm, I'm with the camp that's saying four, four and a half percent. The Biden administration's using six, and there's other banks that said we're at six earlier. And I'm fine with that. I, I kind of question that as far as this year, uh, maybe next year, the following year, something can happen like that. Uh, and then there's some out there at 8%. I really question that, but I'm not against any of them because there's that much variability of how positive this can be. People basically have cabin fever and wherever things are opening up, they are now messing around. They are getting out the credit card and they are going to town and having a good time and they are buying and spending. And once that catch hold, you know, it just, it's just a matter of how well does that spread throughout the population. And that's directly going to relate to just how much that GDP soars. And so, you know, don't be surprised. This thing can really explode like a rocket. But also don't be surprised when in just a couple of years it slid right back. I think over the next four years, we're going to average about four to four and a half percent. And that's really good for a four-year period of time. But that's not that's not extremely high either. If you go back the last 50 years, GDP during decent times has gone from two and a half to about four and a half. And we've had two and a half over the last four to eight years. It's it's just time to be on the upper end of that. It's just that six to eight percent stuff. Again, that that can just relate to just how fast the economy is gonna uh, open up. Right. A reopening should say. Yep. Yep. All now, right. So you want to do the interest rates? Yeah. Let's start with interest rates. So I'm going to give a. I'm going to throw out an example there. So about about a new house. Uh, 35 days ago or whatever it was, I locked in my rate at 2.75, and the other day I saw some interest rates out there at at 3.65 or 3.6. So really, there's been about a anywhere between a half percent to one percent jump in the in the uh, overall interest rates yet the rate of the fed is still at zero so right the 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 fed lending rate still at zero so i guess talk about so, what you see happening there right so what the fed's doing fed is fed has a very tricky job i know there's an awful lot of people don't like the fed and like to do away with the fed and they think the fed causes economic problems well it's far more complicated than that we all cause our own economic problems and the fed has <laughs> right. a job to do yeah. they're right. mandated try to fix some of these problems and yes they fix some and then they wind up creating another one and that's that's the fact of life it's just a tough job it's tricky and what the Fed is uh, doing is saying, if the free market system wants to run higher in interest rates, let it do it. I'm sure they got to limit how high, but they're probably not telling us because they also don't want to encourage anybody on the speculative side to push interest rates that high. And what they're saying is they're probably going to wait to like 2023 or so. And some people think that's too long, but the Fed's saying they're waiting that, but that doesn't mean they won't change their mind. You know, in six to 12 months, if they see something, this is getting out of hand, then they're going to step in and try to try to cool that off. But right at the moment, I think there's I think they feel 
any surge in interest rates and inflation is going to be rather short term and things will cool off a bit, calm down a bit. And I think they feel they got to sweat it out and give it a chance for this economy to get really going. They, when they, they lag the market, you can see sometimes they're like three to five years behind the economy. They keep interest rates low that long just to try to get that added safety net there to pretty much guarantee this economy will grow yet, you know, for several more years. They don't want to bow out too soon because, you know, <laughs> they had to get blamed for doing too much or too little. And right at the moment, they're in the, they're in the mindset of don't get blamed for doing too little and, let, and letting things fall back. So uh, we've seen this interest rate surge. It's really the bond market, which a lot of people think is much smarter than the stock market of figuring out the economy. And I think they're probably right. And the bond market is saying, We've got this fixed. This economy is here and it's here, going to stay there for a few to several years. And there's just no reason to have rates that low. And then you've got investors, especially wealthy investors, that have been putting excess money into bonds, kind of like storing it there, especially government bonds, because they, they maybe they can get hurt if interest rates go up. They can get burned a lot on the actual price of the bond. Capital gains-wise can turn into a capital loss. Okay. Um, but what they feel as though over the long run, though, at least their money is safe. They're going to get it back. So they're making, have made anyways, uh, not good. <laughs> it's a terrible rate in bonds compared to the past 40 years. But at the same time, they feel that they need that safety net because they just don't dare put all their money in the stock market. And there's only so much they can put into real estate and everything else in the country. So what this is doing is the, some of them are trying to jostle things around. They're saying, you know, if the economy is growing for the next several years, probably interest rates are going up. Probably that safe bond market isn't so safe anymore. I ought to pull some money out. So I think some money's coming out, but we also got some fuzzy speculative kind of stuff going on there where the money's staying there, but the way they're trading it is they're pushing interest rates higher. And I think that part is rather short-term thinking, and it's probably going to blow over. And in my model, as of last week, we were looking for a top in interest rates, and I think we got it. The problem is interest rates may only back off for a few weeks and be higher by summer. There's more than one opportunity to find a top this year, and I'm not so sure how well I'll do it. I really haven't called a long-term top. It's just a trader's top. But when I look out the next year, I think we're going to find the interest rates actually back off some. And I don't think that's going to be a bad sign in the economy. I think it's going to be more of a sign that they simply rushed interest rates too high too soon. To me, this whole interest rate thing, and I truly believe the 40 years of lower interest rates is over and interest rates are going higher in the next decade. But if you study your history, it's you'll get these sudden spikes, scare everybody. But overall, it's a rather slow climb on the long term. And I think we're just going to kind of repeat that again. Um, so I, I hear all these people that are so scared interest rates are just going to soar. I kind of feel like they're really causing problems, especially for long-term stock investors trying to build a retirement account. <laughs> I, I hate to say not paying attention to it. Because sure as heck, if I do that, it'll probably go wrong for me. But right. I really think we can get too carried away uh, near term here of uh, getting scared by higher interest rates. Nevertheless, I'm a, I'm a believer interest rates are working higher into next decade. I think the Fed has changed their system. This is more like the 1950s, 1960s, where things started working uh, higher here. Um, 
So that's the best I can tell people, at least near term. I, I I was really pleased how interest rates pulled back last week. The weird thing is the stock market actually went down instead of going up. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But um, the uh, my that's my gut feeling is a little later this year, I'm probably going to call a minor long-term top in interest rates that's going to back off next year. So shall we move on to inflation? Because yeah, that's it's those really two tied tie together. Into, yeah. Yep. Uh, so the inflation also should be done with 40 years of lower inflation and should move higher in the next 15 years or so. There, Once a decade, you're going to get a, a recession. So inflation interest rates will come down during that time. But there's a good chance we'll be right back up again by the, the next decade or so. And here again, I don't really see an explosive run higher inflation. I don't even think inflation in the next 15, 20 years is going as high as it did by 1980. Uh, when it was, uh, what, 10 or 12% or something like that. But I do think it's going higher. And I, I don't have the best of targets right now, but I, you know, to me, we've spent so much time below the Fed's target of 2% that I think we're going to start seeing quite often 3 4% inflation. And the Fed will raise rates, maybe raise rates at that time. If, if, it, if it can back off fast enough, they'll, they'll just wipe the sweat off their brow and leave it alone. Um, Let's talk about the components of inflation. Inflation basically breaks into labor costs and the cost of materials, goods and services, and commodities, okay? And quite often when you come out of a recession, commodities will pick up. And look what's going on. I mean, the lumber just exploded. You'll get commodities pick up, and then they just taper off later. And then, however, as the economy continues to grow, the labor side comes in. So in the end, inflation doesn't back off as much as maybe the commodities do once, once commodities got, got their supply back uh, to match demand. Um, so to me, again, we may see some brief surges in inflation, just like with interest rates. But I think if you are patient, you'll see it ease back some, that it's going to be a slower climb. To me, I think it's next decade that we could get into late inflation. And boy, that's that's when things could get quite high and, and you and you get some problems from it. Uh, so I think that's the mood the Fed is even in, is they're thinking this is just early inflation. It should be good for the economy, and let's be patient, let it roll here, and go on. And at least they've been warning everybody that they're going to do it differently this time. Uh, they're not going to raise those interest rates in, as soon as it strikes two percent, you know. And I do think we'll see uh, higher official inflation numbers into summer. Uh, we should see it by no later than summer. Uh, and that's just because of a lag of how this stuff is reported. I mean, everybody knows inflation's running higher than what it's being reported right now. Okay, just look at what's been going on in the store. But you're just not yet seeing it, but it, it's coming. And uh, uh, I don't mean to jump around here, but I, you know, in the gold market, some people are puzzled. You know, higher inflation is coming. It's coming. You can see it. Why is gold going down? Well, the interest rates are moving up faster than inflation. And if you subtract inflation from interest rates, you get real interest rates. Well, real interest rates can be minus at times. Well, the problem is interest rates are now moving so fast that there's really not that minus interest rate. And that's what the gold market prefers. And there's there's a lot of charts being shown on Twitter now where they're aligning interest rates, gold, and uh, inflation. And you can see there is that characteristic. So maybe if I'm right and interest rates are getting a little bit high here, maybe in the next few months we get those official inflation numbers rising. Maybe that's where gold can shine a bit. Um, but I don't. I'm not. A, I'm not as. I'm not that bullish on gold, but I am bullish. Uh, I think there's other things going on. Gold's going to kind of hold it back here. 
Um, but my forecast is still, like I say, see rising inflation into the next decade, but I think it's going to be more of a process instead of a rocket ship like some people are trying to, uh, to basically scare everybody, you know. All right, so let's, let's do a quick history lesson here. So let's talk about inflation and interest rates from the late 70s through through the 80s and why there was such a, a huge ramp up in there where, you know, home loans were 18%. I mean, what, what was the driving factor there? Yeah, I, so really in the 50s, 60s, things started to turn up. Practically everything was going up. You could get a higher pay raise or, or, or your salary was increasing, not necessarily a bigger and bigger pay raise. And interest rates were going up so you could put money in the savings account as well as the stock market. The stock market was not performing as, as great as today, but it was a, really a good return uh, for that time. The dollar was at times having a difficult time figuring out which way to go because it would watch interest rates for a while and think it ought to go higher. And then it might watch inflation for a while and think it ought to go lower. Uh, I think basically the dollar actually ground higher over time. Uh, but by the time you get to the 70s, then that's where instead of seeing two, three, four, five percent inflation, we started seeing six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. And it was really almost a mood. You, you could see the, the the population was getting into this mood of, okay, I go to the grocery store and you know what? My groceries are five percent higher than they were last week, even. I'm gonna go see my boss and say, I gotta have a pay raise, or I go, I walk, you know. And it was literally that kind of attitude throughout the whole population. Well, you were then creating literally a fake system, economic system, where we were just constantly raising prices for nothing more than the sake of raising prices. And that's when the Fed realized this, this ship is going to it's gonna sink, okay? Something's going to break, and it's going down. It was getting too far. The reason interest rates were rising during that time was banks were basically saying our cost is going up, and we want to make sure we have a share of that. Instead of the Fed trying to figure a way out of that, they just simply said, well, if the, raise, if the interest rates are rising along with this inflation, and we, but the inflation doesn't stop, maybe all we need to do is raise inflation, or I'm sorry, interest rates faster than inflation. And they basically hired Paul Volcker. And he was the one that understood that kind of mechanics, and he basically had the brass to do it. Uh, because when you do that, you also create a recession, which also means you don't uh, become, you're not such a good friends with uh, whoever's in the White House, which at that time was President Reagan had just got elected. You know? right. And, right. and basically, though, Reagan didn't give him two out of time. I'm sure Reagan said, hey, uh, take it easy on us here. But Reagan understood, we've got to do something about this inflation. So we basically said, we'll accept a little pain. We'll have some economic problems. We're going to shoot the interest rates up. So then if you look at your charts, interest rates went to 20%. And yes, then you finally saw some economic problems from that. Uh, an, or an unfortunate side effect like taking a medicine and it kind of makes you sick even though you're <laughs> curing your illness, right? And uh, it worked. From then on, you can see from 1980 to today, the trend of interest rates and inflation have been lower. Not necessarily marching right day to day, but it's exact opposite process. And by the time we got into the 2000s, we were getting to a point where inflation was so low, it was too dangerous to tip into minus inflation and otherwise known as deflation. And even though sometimes you can get that and it's really not a, a bad economic situation at all, there's too many times when it actually turns into a depression. And that was what happened in the Great Depression. Uh, so the bottom line is, uh, that's when Ben Bernanke showed up. So you know the Fed does figure these things out, and pretty soon they say, who are we going to hire <laughs> that's going right. to you know, 
what and what what's going to be our uh our, our modus operandi you know how are we going to go tackle this problem and they basically were tackling it the opposite way other than saying keep those interest rates low take them to zero if you have to and make sure there's plenty of money because in during the depression a lot of that was suddenly the money just seized up there wasn't my i remember my one of my grandfathers uh saying man you know you just couldn't find a dollar and i remember people so scared in the 70s inflation and he would say i don't care if i have to take a wheelbarrow money to the store or not I, you know it's like i want money whereas my other grandfather who grew up more on the energy side he had the opposite view no way was he gonna take a wheelbarrow of money you know he, he preferred the money to be a little bit on the tight side and, and more valuable. And so the problem is, it's like we have no choice when it comes to running your economy and the money printing prices. You're either going to be inflation or you're going to be disinflation. And the problem is both of those will work and at times even provide some fantastic economic times, but both of them break down and burn out. And you've got to recognize that. And believe it or not, for all the complaints of the Fed, they really haven't done too bad a job figuring that out in 1980 and again in 2009 right and what's fascinating to me is i keep you know i do all this sickle research and people say oh you so you think everything repeats history repeats well it really doesn't repeat it's always a little bit different it's more like rhyming but it is interesting the fed is what they're starting to work on is taking us back to the 1950s 1960s which yes we had some higher inflation but if you look at your corn chart to me, it was more of a sideways range. You know, we had some blips up, uh, sometimes perhaps a record high. So it was a gradual thing. It really wasn't to the 70s when everything just went haywire. And of course, we know Nixon and, and the gold standard and all that uh, helped that as well. So the government can make some abrupt changes, no question about it, and make an impact. But most of this stuff is like a slower process. And that's why I think, you know, don't get too excited over the next couple of years really we're going to have a more smooth trend of inflation and interest rates higher into next decade but there's going to be there's going to be pops <laughs> and surges and that's just what you know the interest rates where were we a half a percent to two-thirds of a percent in the 10-year note uh, just last year and exploded to what 1.75 percent and the stock market got hammered and they started to get scared and jittery and yet now i look back at the stock market and this is where sometimes you can watch things too short term you know, they were scared on any uh, given day, but then you step back and zoom out on a weekly chart and you could see really the stock market held up quite well with that surge going to uh, 1.75. And now the rates, uh, what was it, by Thursday, Friday, they backed off to 1.6 or something like that. Um, tonight, I just read an article by Ed Yardini, he's a famous economist, and he does pretty darn good uh, for the long-term trend of the stock market economy. And he said... The economy, if the economy really surges the way a lot of forecasters say, jumping interest rates to the 3% on that 10-year note probably isn't going to hurt the, the economy or the stock market is the way I understood what he was saying. So that's quite a, <laughs> that's almost double from where we are now. Right. Yeah. So, so to me, yeah, yeah, I like in your example of locking in rates, man, I, I think you did the, the right thing. And timing-wise, I think you hit it pretty good. Um uh, it's going to fluctuate. There'll be days where someone will be able to get a little dip in interest rates, but I think um, I'm feeling pretty confident. I made a call in August last year, and honestly, I wasn't that confident. I just said, I got to call this. This is the first best shot. And I warned everybody, here's where I could be wrong a few months from now, but let's go for it. And man, now you look back at that chart and um, 
I, you know, I called it in a matter of a couple of days. Interest rates started working higher uh, in August. And, and maybe we'll be proven wrong a few years from now. Something goes wrong. And at the end of this decade, there'll probably be another recession. And maybe there's something I don't understand that we have to take rates back to zero again or something to help out with the economy. But I don't think so. <laughs> I, I right. think... I think we're going to stay away from that uh, that ten-year note. I don't think it's going under one percent for, for very long if it goes that low again. Let's jump over and talk about the dollar. So a lot of things play into the um, inflation thing, and so right now, if you take a look at what the dollar is doing, you know, last time you were on, we were talking about the dollar, and and it was hovering. Uh, you were you were concerned if the dollar went below. I think you wanted to say eighty, right? Is that right? Uh, what did I say? <laughs> Uh, yeah, if it goes below yeah. 80 on the dollar index, I suppose that could be a glorious time for exports and commodities. But I'd, I'd be I'd be, I'd be wanting to dig deeper of saying what's really going on inside the country. Can something go wrong? Let's put it this way. I guess I always want to put time frames on things because most analysts don't. I think this is where especially economists mess up on trying to keep up with things. They just look at their price target. And they don't think in terms of, yeah, but what's it mean if it gets that price target tomorrow versus it does it two years from now? Okay. And that could be a big, big difference, entirely different stories. And so if the dollar index dropped below 80 this year, uh, yeah, we, we, we need to be doing this podcast again. <laughs> we, <laughs> we need to be digging deep and having a conversation. But, um, but it, you know, if, if the index was below 80 over the next three or four years, that might not be really such a bad thing. Uh, my, my best targets for years now have been 88 to 85, and we were coming pretty close to 88. And basically, all the only reason the dollar is up right now is the interest rates rallied faster than what they were looking at in inflation. And it's possible, I can't prove it for every single country, but it's possible there was a little normal dollar play there where if, uh, if one country's interest rate moves higher or faster than another one, they'll buy the currency of the faster moving interest rate and sell the other one. And so it's possible we were moving too fast, but that's where I want to get careful of saying the interest rates inflation is going to move higher and higher nonstop because uh, what happens is sure we might've raised our rates too high, but in a few months, it's quite possible other countries will be raising their rates faster than us. I mean, it's like a tide of an ocean, you know, it's like the whole world's following one another. Uh, so I'm not convinced that's a reason to keep pushing this this dollar higher, and I'm not so sure. I, I kind of feel like there's still a chance of 88 to 85 on the dollar index uh, over the next couple of years. I'm still a long-term bear, but I've warned everybody the decline last year was huge. And I must admit, at the end of the year, I got nervous. I think we kind of talked to this on the show. Um, I got nervous. Everybody was so bearish for this year as well. But I really didn't want to go as low as some of them. I didn't want that below 80. I really didn't think it could happen. And it still may happen, but I don't think so. So why, when some of those were thinking for the first quarter of this year, the dollar is just going to be falling apart, well, what happened is they had literally bet too much money on the downside of the dollar. And it's just like the funds, uh, when people are watching the funds in the corn and soybean market. And pretty soon they'll say, you know, these funds are so darn short. They bet too much on the downside something's going to happen. The price is going to go the other way. And it's amazing. It's not necessarily a good timing indicator, but it's a good indicator. You know, something will happen to take price the other way. Well, the same thing here in the dollar, they were betting so so much that that they flipped the other way. And from what I understand, they're now slightly net long a dollar. 
And I, uh, that, that could get, cause a little bit of problems here for commodities for a little while, but we've already sold so much <laughs> on the grain side that I kind of feel like we can write it out. And I'm looking for a sell signal in the dollar index, uh, traders signals, not a long-term signal. It's just one of the more important signals during a year that I think hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll see the dollar uh, back off again. And I think maybe that can correspond with maybe backing off on interest rates. And if we can get those higher inflation numbers now going into summer without getting those interest rates to go crazy on us, uh, there's a good chance the dollar will walk lower off of that higher inflation. So they'll sell the dollar on higher inflation. They'll buy the dollar on higher interest rates, but you got to compare the <laughs> interest rate inflation together to help get a clue what, what they want to do. Right. Okay. So so here we are heading into um, in the playing season right now. Um Brazil is going into their uh, corn planting season um, right now. All the indicators show that they're going to plant their corn crop too late and they're going to have some issues with pollination during high heat. And everyone knows that when you pollinate corn during high temperatures, it never really works out very well for anybody. The Chinese are still just buying as much as they can buy anywhere they can buy it. And if so, as you take a look at, at where the dollar is strength-wise and then you compare it to where commodity prices are, there, there's a, yeah, even though the dollar is a, a touch weaker than what it has, but is there some inflationary things with the dollar that are driving, um, not just because of supply and demand on, on the commodity side of stuff, but just also some inflationary things that we see happening there. At what point where that equilibrium cause, I mean, where I guess what's, what, I, what I'm trying to ask you here is at what point where our commodity price is going to get too high, you know, worldwide. That all of a sudden, the the weakness of the dollar really doesn't matter anymore. Uh, good point. That uh, that will play in later this year. Uh, right at the moment, the grain markets have enjoyed some additional demand on the speculative side from playing the inflation game. But at some point, you know, the grains have to say, "Well, I really can't pay much attention to inflation." And and even the dollar in the last six months, in my opinion, has been more for wheat. That corn and soybeans really have not paid. That much pension at all. So um, at some point it has to give in. And I, and I, you know, even though I want to see an 88 to 85, because I think that'll be good for the economy and good for commodities. Um, if, if, if we did that immediately here, I, I should say over the next six months, the problem is I think we've already sold enough grain. That I don't know if it would really help out the grain prices that much. I think it'll help out any other lagging commodity that hasn't caught up after this virus recession. So it could be a split thing going on where it's not all commodities doing the same thing. And, and some of these things are high priced. Like I'm willing to give the grains another shot to see what we get, a shot higher that is, to see what we get for summer. But, you know, if you dial in decent crops or something and make an army, hey, this thing's already high, high enough. You've already dialed in the inflation and you've dialed in your good exports. So, but I'm still willing to wait even though I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder for any kind of important signal here, I, I'm willing to give the grains another, another pop in the summer, but like uh, things like lumber, even though I realize that's not, well, we export lumber, but um, you know, lumber uh, last week, I just put out a, what I call a minor long-term uh, bearish signal, sell signal. And I think lumber prices, at least in the futures are going down into next year. And I also put out a signal on copper. 
And copper, of course, is called Dr. Copper because people use it to measure the economy. Well, this big surge in copper told us, you know what, we got really hurt with that fire succession, but you know what, everybody's going to get back to work somehow, some way. And you, the fire succession has hurt your supply side so that things have tightened up. We've already flushed it out on the low price copper. We not need Now we need more copper, but we're not building the supply fast enough because they're not fully out of the recession. Okay, you still have some miners that aren't back on the job, right? Or maybe they're back, but it just hasn't caught up enough in the inventory. Hopefully I've explained that. But because what happened with the virus recession, we got a demand crash first, uh, demand disruption, and the supply side then panicked and kept selling. That's why the grain prices went lower all the way into June last year. Okay. They just kept selling, selling because they were scared of no hope to get the demand back. Then the second phase of that virus recession was a supply crash. That, oops, we cut back too much, and now the demand's coming back, and we're behind, and the free market just said raise prices. Well, normally it wouldn't have raised it that fast, but we got caught up in all that money printing and the higher inflation story and the speculation, and it just soared those prices. So copper did the right thing of telling us, you know what, the economy is coming back. You know, Don't give up on the economy. The U.S. is going to survive and move on. That's all there is to it. Now the problem, though, is, is copper is probably going to switch back to normal microeconomics. It's about the economics of copper itself and not about the economy. And what's going to happen is businesses are going to say, I, I don't want to pay any higher for copper. And they're going to find out it's going to get easier to get away with that. And we will build those supplies of copper up. Now, I realize there's, if you get on Twitter and all the media, you will find some very good articles showing how we could have tight copper supplies for several years that, that the way the world is growing population-wise, economy-wise, we're really not keeping up production. But that's not because of this virus recession. That's another story altogether, and it's far more long-term and far more drawn out. So I'm convinced we'll see lower copper prices, even though we're still moving lots of copper, and it's not going to be a, an economic indicator for a problem for the economy. Now, if copper were to crash, you know, a gigantic amount, a very brief amount of time, then I would say, yep, we need to have another podcast here and have a conversation. What's going on in the economy? Somebody isn't doing right. something right. Uh, gear just broke, went in the transmission or something, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, so it, you know, it's a good indicator. You just got to know how to use it because sometimes it is going to reflect its own economics and not really tell you what's going on in the country. Um, so I, I see both lumber and copper coming down and, and then next year, I think most commodities are going to be, I think the grains are going to be down unless we also get a crop problem next year. Then that's an di entirely different story. But all things considered, uh, even if we've got a crap problem this year, you'll see lower prices next year. They're just gonna they're just gonna automatically bet on, hey, guaranteed good crap the next year after a bad crop. You know, they're just gonna go for it. And the speculators gonna and these funds, they're gonna start pulling out. Uh, what are they? I think on the corn, aren't they record large or something like that? Well, you go back 2012 and see what they did. And even in 2010, 2011, when I was so bullish and a lot of people weren't. The funds would get bowled up going into summer, but during summer, when prices were moving higher, they were actually getting out. They were reducing their positions, trying to take money on the way up and reduce their risk. And the reason is they were also betting, you know what, prices will be down next year. So you got to keep that in mind. Uh, I'll definitely be looking for a sell signal later this year. I'm just saying maybe the grains can hold up better, maybe than copper, than lumber here for a while yet. Um, 
But I do think, and I'm thinking even inflation ought to back off a little next year. So if we get a big surge going in the summer, I think it's going to back off. That's going to calm people down. It's going to calm down the interest rates. I'm very convinced interest rates will at least dip a little bit uh, by next year. It's just a matter of do interest rates top this year or do we have to wait for even a top uh, next year? I think crude oil will be backed off a little bit. But I don't see that as an economic problem. That's just normal business that we have twists and turns along the way. Uh, I think the inflation story will stay around for quite some time. And I think the economy is going to grow throughout this decade. But there will be twists and turns that kind of, for the economy, I view it as throttle up, throttle down. And we might throttle down a little bit next year. It may not even be the economy, but it's just commodities and stock markets just simply take profits. They get nervous. There's going to be an election next year. Uh, we got politics that can go in for future tax uh, increases, things like that could cause some of those fluctuations in those markets when, in fact, the economy is just doing well. And I'm very convinced that by 2023, 2024, everything will be swinging back up again. It's just we'll have to have a conversation again of can all those commodities swing back up or not, you know. Depends how good. In other words, if we did get a crop problem this year or next, we explode corn to eight bucks, I might say, well, in 23, 24, the economy is going to be doing great, but corn might not be back up there. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. I, have to get back to those microeconomics, right? So hopefully that makes some sense to everyone that I, I really want to be bullish to the economy this and stock market this decade. Definitely bullish into 2024. I have my targets in the stock market like 4,300 on the S&P 500 now into next year. Uh, hopefully a little higher than that even. And we're, all, we're almost at 4,000 right now. Uh, by 2024, I see it at 5,100 to 5,600. Uh, by for the decade, I see it at 6,800, 8,500, so it can nearly double from here. Um, and, I, and it's possible those are even minimum targets. And, and that doesn't mean that it's, you know, the glorious economy all decade long. And I don't think we're really going to see the roaring 20s. We're going to kind of have clues of it or hints of it at times. <laughs> and maybe somebody's going to throw a few parties to act that way. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, truly history repeating this time. Well, I hope we don't have the Roaring Twenties because that led into the Dirty Thirties. So I hope that Absolutely. doesn't. Absolutely. hope that <laughs> my, history doesn't repeat itself. My best way. forecast is, yeah, if we're going to have a crash, I should wait for 2040. And so I just soon wait. So <laughs> right, right, right on. Okay. So one last thing here. So we kind of covered where the dollar is, export, we talked about inflation, talked about interest rates. So now we talked about gold and copper and kind of where they're at right now and those kind of things. The one thing that I hear more and more people talk about, you know, as far as, you know, the U.S. dollar is a world reserve currency and, you know, we're able to get away with a lot of things that other people aren't willing to get or able to get away with because we are, we have the currency that the rest of the world trades just about everything in. I mean, you can't buy oil unless it's all, I mean, all in dollars. You can't even, you have to use dollars to buy oil. For the most part, grain is, around the world, is is traded in dollars. I mean, you can use local currency to exchange to get to that rate. But for the most part, it's all, everything's kind of ebbs and flows on the dollar as far as the world economy goes. Where does Bitcoin and all these cryptocurrencies and those kind of things fit into that? I mean, this is like, it depends on what camp you're in. Either you are... Bitcoin is a new gold, or Bitcoin is a complete waste of money. It's a pump and dump scheme, some Ponzi scheme that somebody came up with, I guess. So what's your thoughts on Bitcoin, and how does that all kind of weave itself into what we see with the world economy? Yeah, uh, and there's two different ways, 
how do I want to put this? Two different factions or usage. Yeah, two different usage of, of uh, cryptocurrency, which is the Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the biggest, largest, so it gets the headlines. So a lot of people think cryptocurrency is Bitcoin, but really it's the other way around. Cryptocoins is a variety of these things, different types of Bitcoins. And really, it, it's actually three things. One thing is it's a technology that can actually be used and have nothing to do with money. You can use it in keeping track of uh, lettuce coming from California to New York, and you suddenly realize you got a, uh, a load with uh, now I can't think of the illness that people get from it. But anyways, they can use cryptocurrency or not cryptocurrency. They can use that blockchain technology where they can literally trace that head of lettuce all the way back to the specific farm. Well, that's pretty fascinating stuff. And that's really being developed. And there's going to be some great things coming out of that in coming years. But when you go to the, the cryptocurrency and the Bitcoin, they're using that blockchain technology, but it's supposedly meant to be a currency. Well, it's really not a currency, yet I fully understand why some people say it is, because they're using it for an exchange of things, okay? So I just bought my corn in U.S. dollar, or no, I want to buy corn in U.S. dollars, but I'm going to use uh, Bitcoin. So I have to convert Bitcoin to U.S. dollars, I buy your corn, and I use wound up using Bitcoin on my end. That's fascinating, that's just like trading any other kind of currency. That's actually a small portion of the business, and it's got a long ways to grow. And it's actually, everybody kept saying it was going to be cheaper to use it. Well, it turns out it's a very expensive thing with the, all these computers keeping track of that Bitcoin. It's all on computers. There is no coins. There is no dollar bill in, in reality. You can get machines that will kind of print something out, I guess. But basically, it's all held on computers. It's a digital thing. And that makes me uneasy because I like to know where my money is. So I'm kind of thinking with my luck. Right. I put too much in it, and yeah. suddenly the computer's gone, and you know what? I don't have my money anymore, and, and, and a lot of this stuff doesn't have the records either, which is why some are complaining that the criminals are using Bitcoins. So the thing is, um, it's got a ways to go on, on the currency side, but China's definitely working at it, and I think they're hoping to get a leg up in the world to become popular that their currency should be used just as much as the dollar. Well, you can bet where the U.S. is studying it as well, and there's many other countries. So it's quite possible this is going to become much bigger and popular and even going to be backed by countries, backed by central banks. My guess is that some of them will have their own currency, however, so Bitcoin could possibly lose out on that. Um, so the whole currency transaction thing is likely to develop. It's likely here to stay. But it's not as big as a lot of people think, and it's not as big as everybody uh, that the, um, the people who are really bullish on it um, they're not they're not using false advertiser, but they're not really telling the clear picture that it's got a long ways to go. What's really going on in Bitcoin is the speculation side. Just as you can bet on a currency, okay, you can bet on the Swiss franc and the U.S. dollar and the Japanese yen. You're not just using it for transaction. You're literally saying, I don't want the U.S. dollar right now. I want all my money in Japanese yen. Put it in my bank account. You can do that. Uh, so that's what's going on for some of these speculators is they just want to see if they can make money out of Bitcoin going higher. And some of them have been in from the very beginning have made fortunes. There's 20-year-olds with $300,000 Lamborghinis, and they still have much more in Bitcoin. They got in early enough, and they and a lot of them seem to think they're going to make much more. Bitcoin's what, around 54000 I might be off on that. But Very it's close, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're talking 100, 180,000 someday. So, you know, not as fast as returns of those that got in earlier years ago, but still significant increases. Well, the problem is they, they kind of, 
they kind of advertise this as a storage, a place to store your money. It's a store of value. And I guess I don't care for something that can go up maybe 50 or 100%, but also go down 90%. To me, that's not much of a store of value. So I have a hard time, and I believe it, I play with Bitcoin a little bit, not directly. I use a fund, and in fact, I just got out here uh, last week or week before, made, made a little money before it snapped back there. And I'm probably going to buy it again just for kicks, but it's more of a play thing for me. Um, I'm, what I'm really doing is testing my model real time on it because it's, it's still kind of new for me. And, uh, and it's working. I like it. I, I don't care for my model on a day-to-day basis, but I, I really like it for these bigger trends uh, during the year. And I, I don't doubt Bitcoin's going to go higher. But I, uh, I, I just question here. I just don't think anybody should have huge amounts of it because there's nothing stopping it dropping 90%. It's just not like, it's just not like our stock market and some of the more well-proven uh, used markets. So bottom line is, it's uh, to me, it's just a speculative market more than anything. But it's they're trying to get get in that transaction. Tesla, Elon Musk over at Tesla, they they got it rigged so you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Yeah, I saw that the other day. And and you know, and if you made a lot of money in Bitcoin, in theory, then that Tesla car is cheaper. But I got to think about it. I said, but that's no different than playing games with other currencies. That's nothing new. And, and what is different is you're going to pay capital gains on that compared to uh, other ways of doing it. So you might not make what you think. And some of the fees, which are supposed to be cheap, from what I understand, there's just all kinds of fees that can be piled on top of one another <laughs> to actually use it. Mm-hmm. But I must say, you know, the people who love it, they really love it. You're not going to talk them out of <laughs> and they, And they get very upset with people who want to put down Bitcoin. And I'm not really putting it down. It probably is here to stay. It's, uh, and, and well, I kind of got off track here. We want to talk where this is going with reserve currency. Um, from what I understand with history, when you see countries that happen to have been a world currency, of course, some, some of that was nothing but gold and you go back a thousand years or something, but you would still treat it as a currency. Um, it looks like when a current, when a country got 100 to 300 years old, it was like eventually they were replaced with another country, uh, that they couldn't stay with a reserve currency. And I've come to the conclusion that, yeah, the U.S. is old enough now that, yeah, maybe we should consider that we're going to lose reserve currency. But I've also come to the conclusion that it's not going to be overnight like some people are advertising, you know, pounding their fist and whatnot. Uh, this could be a process for decades before we wake up that, you know what, people aren't using the U.S. dollar like they were. And it may even take centuries before we get to the point that, wow, you know, we've been replaced. But we also know China would like to do that, and they would like to do it soon. <laughs> so, right. yeah. yep. you know, they're working on it. And uh, so we do have to watch out for that. But I, I get, I want to be cautious. I hate to see people, you know, get nervous over a stock market crash and where's their retirement and their 401k gone because someone said, oh, the U.S. is going to not be the reserve currency. And, and you know, we talk about how much money's printed and it's it's scary. You look at a chart of how much money we printed over the last 30 years. It just, it's going straight up and there's like, there's no stopping it. Well, fortunately for myself, a long time ago, I said, nobody's going to be able to predict when we prevent, uh, when we actually print too much money. And I've been right for 30, 30 years now on this. And who knows, maybe everything crashes tomorrow, but I don't think so. I think we'll print money for decades yet, yet to come. But I will say this, 
I think the reason the U.S. can get away with it compared to some countries that tried to print a lot of money and it blew up on them is we are the reserve currency. The world wants to use our currency. They're not going to dump it. And maybe someday they will, and maybe it's a process. And when that someday gets here, I will be the first to say, well, you better be darn careful how much money you're printing here because it can then blow up on you. So we have a little bit of a luxury right now uh, that's helping us with that. And But I don't, you know, for those who are saying it's going to happen tomorrow, I, I'm sorry. I just, I just don't. Just don't see that happen and uh, go take it from there. <laughs> the biggest thing that would have to happen in that whole scenario is that the number one thing that, that secures the uh, U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency is 100% the fact that the, the one thing that drives the entire world is oil. And that's where all the energy in the world comes from. And everything has to be bought in dollars. So until that happens, I mean, the Saudis could wake up tomorrow and say, you know, we're not taking... U.S. dollars anymore. We're going to take whatever's, and then all of a sudden that 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 really changes the landscape of, of what of what happens. But at the end of the day, man, I tell you, it. Yeah, I think you'd have to restructure a lot of things in the world to undo the U.S. dollar as a world as a world currency. I, I think so. You're going to have to have a majority of the countries in the world just saying we don't even want to do business with you. So it'll be more than 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 just saying we don't want to use the dollar. It, it's going to be, they don't want to do trade. <laughs> you know, It's going to be a, a huge and very complicated problem. And I think instead we're looking at a net slow evolutionary process that, yeah, some unlucky generation down the road will suddenly wake up, boy, you know, we really lost our um, our status here in the world. I just, I just don't see it coming from overnight. So. Yep, that's, that is exactly right. Okay, well, Rich, good stuff as usual. One more time, if folks want to reach out to you and get information about what you've got going on, what's your what's your Twitter handle, what's your website, and all that stuff. Yeah, so the website is criticalpoint.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And my Twitter handle is at Rich underscore Posson, P-O-S-S-O-N. And they can also email me at uh, rich at ag-financial.com. Send me some questions, comments. I'm willing to chat and go over the markets and, uh, but boy, go to that website and uh, check out some of those uh, audio and video podcasts. And uh, I think you're going to be very pleased and become a follower. And I'm running a, running a good retention. I'm very happy. A lot, a lot of people are saying, you know, I, I subscribe to others' newsletters, but this brings in a nice, fresh twist to compare to everybody else. And, and then I have some that uh, they do their own analysis and they're basically telling me that I'm the only one that they're purchasing from right now to help them with their analysis. It's a good comparison. It's a, you're really going to be pleased of how I show when it's time for demand to stop or the supply that's coming down the pipeline to stop. In other words, we focus too much on picking that magical price. Oh, $6 is going to be the end of the bull market in corn. Well, maybe, but you often find people shoot a lot of darts doing that. I'd much rather know, you know what? This week, it's over, folks. It's been running up for six months. It's over and done. And I don't care if the price is $4, $5, $6. The point is it's going lower because the demand demand's going to flip. And it's amazing to me when we make these kind of signals Quite often, you don't really get that negative news, and it's later after the price has already come down some that you suddenly see the bad news and, and the bad fundamentals. So in a way, you can use this as a tool to forecast when you're going to see that bad news coming. 
as well as good news. I mean, it works both ways. I don't favor any. <laughs> I put out buy and sell signals. You're not going to get one or only. Uh, I'm out there to help both sides and make some money. Right on. Well, like I said, folks, definitely look Rich up on Twitter. Follow his Twitter, uh, all the stuff he puts out there on Twitter. Go to that his website there, The Critical Point, uh, there on Podbean. And make sure you check that out because I, I, I listen to it. And uh, even though I'm a layman when it comes to this stuff, I understand what's going on. So make sure you go check that stuff out. A lot of great information out there. And Rich, like always, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you're going to find the latest editions of the Moving Iron Podcast. Also go to movingironllc.com. You'll find all the podcasts out there on the website as well as all the blog posts that I've made. Also check out um, the Moving Iron Summit coming up in September 15th through the 17th. Um, that's in Nashville, Tennessee. Any dealer out there in North America or the world, for that matter, that wants to come, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. I'll get you some more information on that. It's Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. Or you can go to the website at movingironllc.com. Go up to the Moving Iron Summit page, and you'll be able to get your information there. You'll be able to see the agendas and how to register for the event, hotel rooms, all that kind of stuff. So definitely check that out. It's well worth your time. It's a great networking event. Um, so if you're interested in doing that, Go to the website and get all the information you had or reach out to me at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. Also, check out all the stuff going on over at the Dryland Farmer Podcast. Brent and Landon, those two guys will, will make you laugh and, and keep you going throughout the day. So with that, I am Casey Seymour with Rich Possum. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. You want to have a meaningful competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The reach of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. To find more or become an Axon dealer, Head over to axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century.